for joining me, Pete Holterman, for the Credentials Only podcast, where you are introduced to people who work in sports. Today's guest is sports photographer Ben Solomon. In talking to Ben, as he shared his experiences from rushing out for breaking news when working for his university paper to getting his work on the front page of the New York Times, the word hustle kept coming to mind for me. I think the one thing that I learned in college, or maybe it's been ingrained in me, uh, you know, from, from when I was a teenager is, you know, actually putting in work. That might not mean putting a camera in your hands and going out to shoot stuff, but actually figuring out a way to gain some traction. And so that for me meant networking and reaching out to everyone that I possibly could. Ben shares great insights into the business side of being a photographer, where his work involves not only that networking, but also things like copyrights and invoices. He also reveals that he does scouting reports before assignments. You know, photography, a lot of it is luck, um, but there is some calculation to it and making sure that you're in the right place at the right time to anticipate when those moments happen. A step like that is important because photography is a competitive business. You know, when you're at major events, when you're at an Australian Open or when you're at the Super Bowl, it's cutthroat in the sense that nobody's nobody's trying to do anything maliciously per se. If you're standing next to 50 other photographers, why are the people that are hiring you paying you what they're paying you versus the 50 other people that are standing next to you? Ben also shares advice for aspiring photographers. You don't need to have a credential to a major event to actually build a portfolio. You know, when you go and sit down with these photo editors, they don't want to see you know, a, a picture of the New York Giants or, or a picture of, you know, Roger Federer. Or anything. They want to see that you have the, the, the willpower to make a photo potentially out of nothing and embrace whatever surroundings you may be in. Make sure you visit credentialsonly.com for this episode's show notes that include a link to Ben's own portfolio and to some of the specific images we discuss. Without further ado, please enjoy this conversation with sports photographer Ben Solomon on Credentials Only. Ben, thanks so much for joining me. Uh, near the end of your time at George Washington University, you authored a farewell column in the school paper, The Hatchet. And you wrote about showing up on the first day before classes as a freshman. And you said, quote, I didn't really know how to take a photo, but I somehow convinced the photo editor at this paper I knew how to. How little experience did you have when you walked into the Hatchet's office? You know, I don't remember writing that. I remember that piece really, really well. Um, but that's probably the motto of my entire career so far. Now, I haven't heard anybody repeat that, that line to me. Um, how little did I know? I, I, as a senior in high school, was the first time I picked up a camera. Um, and it was just me literally screwing around. Um, and I shot, you know, a, a high school football game. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of fun. You get to be on the sidelines. There was that allure to it at the point at that time. Um, so going into freshman year of college, I, I really did not know. I had a camera um, that I believe my parents or someone bought for me, that first one. Um, and yeah, I didn't know anything about how to use that camera. Um, so very little is, is, is the short answer. You also wrote in that article that learning occurs during what you do with your free time. 100%. Sounds like photography became that free time pastime of yours. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I still, that, that, that's one line. So <laughs> this article that was written, I'll date myself, but it was written in 08, um, rings very true to a lot of things that have kind of, 
uh, transpired over the course of my career. Um, in college, I, ne I never, even before college, I was never into sitting in a classroom. My grades, I got into college obviously, but my so my grades were whatever, SAT scores were whatever, um, but I, my family pushed me, my uncle and then my parents specifically pushed me, you need to find something else to do besides just get good grades. And whether you're getting good grades or not, sure. Um, and, and so I found this hobby that I knew nothing about um, and that completely consumed, you can ask my roommates in college, that completely consumed um, literally all four years of, of college. Um, if I were to go backwards, I would probably do it all over again exactly the same. Um, but yeah, it, it, it took up all of the free time that I, that I did have in school. And it's taking up the time, but you're learning as you go, obviously. If you've now made a career of something that when you walked in the door, you had barely done, how did you educate yourself in that free time? Yeah, so, um, you know, you, you a lot of it is, you know, the, there, there's the saying, imitation is the highest form of flattery. Um, so, you know, you see the upperclassmen that are actual you know, could be professional photographers and some of them went on to become professional photographers in that school newspaper. You know, the school newspaper is a hodgepodge of, you know, kids and nerds that are all running around that think they're, you know, really cool on campus and really important when in reality, you're just part of the, you know, the ethos system of, of the university. Um, but um, yeah, I, I would, I don't know that I would research in terms of like reading, um, but I would pay attention to every picture that was published in that school newspaper. And then that morphed into me going to school in, in, in DC. The Washington Post is a major outlet that's based out of there. So that morphed into me looking at the Washington Post very regularly and looking at their photography. Um, and then, you know, just starting to, starting to just look at images. Um, whether, and, and at the time I wasn't really into sports photography. That kind of, I kind of, veered that way towards the end of my collegiate career. Um, but early on, you know, I was shooting the silliest of features to, um, you know, some breaking news stuff that would happen in and around DC. Um, but it, but it was just, it was rinse, wash and repeat and just continuing to, to, you know, you're learning on the job. So going at, you know, if you get a call saying, Hey, you know, there's this breaking news assignment, you know, downtown, you would, you know, you would jump in a cab with your cameras and go, you'd have no idea what you were stepping into. And, you know, the first few times that I did that, you know, it was super, you know, I was super wide-eyed about, it was, it was, it was a cool experience. Like, oh, cool. There's breaking news. And I'm a part, you know, I'm shooting this. I had no idea how to do that. I had no idea what the parameters were and what the ground rules were. Um, so it, it was a lot of trial by fire and, you know, you get your butt chewed out a little bit if you screw up, but that's how you learn. Um, and that, that's, that's how I've learned, you know, that's how I learned college and, and well after that as well. Are there particular people who took you under their wing and kind of said, okay, here's something to consider, or was it literally you're just learning by observing? Yeah, I think so. There's, you know, in a school newspaper, so the GW Hatchet um, was, was a, a pretty good paper when I was there. It was winning national awards left and right. Um, and, and so there, there were photo editors that would, you know, assign out these things. And when you would screw up, you would either get called into the office um, or you get a phone call saying, you know, why did you do X, Y, or, or Z? Um, so, you know, the first photo editor that I had there, um, he was a, he was a tough cookie, but he knew what he was doing. Um, and he, he was able to produce really good images. So that gave him some clout in my eyes of, you know, well, if this guy's chewing me out for a reason X, Y, or Z, there's, 
there's probably a good reason why he, you know, he's been at this for longer than I am. Again, you know, you have to put it in the, in the sphere of we're all in college. So, you know, we're, we're all kids still. Um, but yeah, a lot of it was just kind of trial by fire. And, um, yeah. You majored in marketing and sport event management. So you, you had an interest in sports clearly going in. Uh, and you said late in your career at, at the hatchet, you got into the sports photography. What struck a chord when you started shooting sports? Yeah, I think, I, you know, I think like a lot of people in sports and, and, and the, the folks that are, are in sports now in a professional level, you probably forget those first few times that you sat on a baseline at a basketball game or on the sidelines of a football game. But that initial um, not shock, but you know, you're getting a credential. So you're not waiting in line with a ticket. Um, and you're getting to witness, um, and, and capture moments for other people that, that, that aren't in the building to see. Um, and I think that very early on, um, struck a chord with me, um, and stuck with me clearly to this day. Um, you know, it's, it's not as cool anymore to sit on the baseline of a, of a basketball game, but that, that still, that concept, of, of being there to capture things for others that can't, that, that can't be there. Um, I, I think that still rings very true to this day for me. At what point did you start to earn money? It's a really good question. Um, so the photo world is full of you needing to have a decent amount of money to buy a decent camera or to buy a decent lens. And so every check that you get year, you know, assignment over assignment, a lot of the times what you're doing early on is you're throwing that back into gear to get your gear up to a level of, you know, of usability. So you can go out and shoot for whoever may end up calling you. Um, I would say probably within a year coming out of college. So when I came out of college, I wanted to be in television, um, which you probably didn't find in any of your really thoughtful research that you've done, or maybe you have, I don't know maybe you have, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, uh, cast doubts on you. Um, but so, so there was a stint right out of college where um, I worked for a TV show and I quickly realized that the, the corporate ladder in the television world is probably one of the most wild ones that exist. Um, and I said, you know what, I think I could probably make a living doing this photo stuff. Um, and so there was a very strong and quick pivot um, early on right after college. Um, and so, I, you know, early on, I don't know when the first time I turned a profit, um, because it's like a train. It's like a train started. It's a very slow trickle. And then when you get that train into gear of it kind of, you know, rolling down the tracks, you know, you start to pick up traction from all these different places. Um, so, yeah. You're dabbling in TV. I did do my research. Uh, you actually were with NBC for two Olympic games. What were your roles with them? Yeah. So um, I did the 2006 Torino Olympics. I was still in college at the time. Um, and I got a, it was, I, I believe it was a, an internship technically. Um, but internships, usually when you're in college, you only, you're, you know, you're, in, most internships are summer internships. I had to convince all of my professors um, to allow me to skip class for a full month so I can go to Italy to be a part of the Olympic Games. And basically I was a, I, I was a production assistant. I was a, a tape logger in there in the uh, International Broadcast Center within NBC's compound in there. Um, and that's probably the biggest event that early on, that's probably the largest event that I had ever been to at the time. Um, but, you know, you're stuck in a control room um, and people barking at you. And at one point, I think I was in charge of 
logging all of the, anytime there was an aerial feed of the opening game. So there's obviously a lot of fireworks that happen during the opening ceremonies. Um, I was responsible for like letting the controller know like, hey, blimp number one just showed up on the feed and then they would take that in the broadcast. So very remedial task, but you know, that's obviously how, uh, how you start. And I did a very similar thing in the 2008 uh, Beijing games. I did that stateside though. That was when NBC or sports broadcasters were starting to um, keep a lot of folks home in their facilities. Um, and so I, I did a lot of logging and, and kind of production assistant like stuff from their studios at 30 Rock for that. And that Beijing experience came shortly after graduation. And it sounds like you were fully committed, though, getting out of school. Photography was what you were going to do. Did you, back of a napkin, come up with a business plan, a game plan of how you were going to make a living doing this? No, not at all. Um, you know, I, I knew, right, like, like a lot of college students, I was um, fortunate enough to be able to move back in with my parents um, and, and, you know, stayed at their place to, you know, pocket, pocket some change as I was, as I was making money early on. Um, but there was no, early on, there was no thought of, you know, hey, this is the business model that I want to go with. And, and these are the target goals that I have year over year. It just kind of, um, it, it kind of, you know, steamrolled out of control um, a few years later when things were coming at me all these, you know, all these different ways, which, which, you know, very grateful for. Um, but yet early on, I was not, I don't, I don't know what I was expecting early on. I don't know if I was expecting this to be a full blown career or if it was just like me screwing around right out of college, having fun. Um, and both of those things seem to have happened. It's a bit of a flywheel effect and you get to that where things are coming at you. And I want to talk about that, but you got to start somewhere. Sure. What are the first gigs? How are you getting them? How are you able to get some food on the table? Even if you got rent cop covered, you still got to, earn something doing this. Sure, yeah. How do you start getting those first gigs and what were they? Yeah. So I think the one thing that I learned in college, or maybe it's been ingrained in me, uh, you know, from, from when I was a teenager is, you know, actually putting in work that might not mean putting a camera in your hands and going out to shoot stuff, but actually figuring out a way to gain some traction. And so that for me meant networking and reaching out to everyone that I possibly could. So going into senior year of college, you know, I, while I did those, um, you know, production assistant roles for, for NBC, at the same time, I was also applying for photo internships at the Washington Post, at the New York Times, at all of the New York, you know, New York, New York Daily News and New York Post, all of the national dailies, I was applying for internships. Um, and it got to a point where um, I got called in, I remember, to the Washington Post, and the executive, the uh, photo editor at the time said, you're not good enough for me to bring you on board uh, as, a, as a photo intern, quote unquote, but I want to give you an assignment. So he didn't want to, he didn't want me to work for free for six months, but he wanted to just throw me a bone and have me actually shoot for a paycheck, shoot for an assignment rate. Um, and I literally, I had to, it was like the Four Seasons Hotel, I had to shoot mac and cheese, like a dish of mac and cheese. And that ran in the newspaper like months later, like a tiny, like one inch by one inch. And I thought this was the coolest thing in the world. Um, so getting started, it was, it was all, it was networking. And I, that's, I think that's the only, I don't know that I'm good at photography. I think I'm decent at the networking piece of this, um, where it's just letting people know that you're out there. Um, so reaching out to the New York Times sports photo editor, 
constant, respectfully constantly um, until they gave me assign- an assignment. Um, and then that's how, you know, you do one assignment. My first assignment with the New York Times was, um, I don't remember what year it was, either 2000, I think it was 2009, but it was, um, it was the New York City Marathon. And I thought this was the coolest thing. I'm getting a credential. I'm shooting for the New York Times, massive publication. Um, but I was one of like 12 photographers shooting for the New York Times. And I had no idea I was part of this larger team. And I was, you know, placed somewhere out in Brooklyn, but I made the most of it. Um, and that's, you know, that got me some traction there. So it was, it was, it was piecemeal at, at first, um, where you get an assignment check coming in, um, you know, for one week, and then you might not work for two weeks. And, but, it, but that networking thing, I never let go of. And I continued to reach out to people to, to try to gain traction in the space. You said you made the most of it when you got sent out to Brooklyn for the marathon. How? What does that mean? Yeah. So, um, again, you know, you think New York City Marathon, you think I don't even know what the routing that they take, but but they start, I believe, in Staten Island, I think. Um, And so there are these gorgeous photos of, you know, tens of thousands of people crossing a bridge at the start of it. Um, And then the end of it, it ends in Central Park. And so there's iconic pictures of the New York City Marathon there's no, there's not really any iconic pictures from Brooklyn. Brooklyn's at towards the beginning of the race. Um, so you have no idea who's going to, you know, who's in, there's a leader pack, but you don't know, you know, who's going to win the thing because it's so early on. Um, and the, I I believe that before the actual, um, male and female runners come by, there was like a, a wheelchair component to it. So either quads or I don't know what they technically called it. Um, and so there was there was a, a big pack of, of wheelchairs racing in, in the New York City Marathon. And there was a fire truck on the other side of the road. And I, all I remember was I took this picture of, the, of these wheelchairs flying through this intersection, these firefighters kind of waving and cheering them on the, there was a, a traffic light that turned like from red to green or something. Um, and that was the picture that ran in, in the New York times the next, the next day. Um, that was the only picture that I had. It was of these wheelchair um, racers running, you know, doing the New York city marathon. But again, you don't, th- when you think New York city marathon, you think, you know, that's not the first thing you probably think about. So making the most of just witnessing what my surroundings were and, you know, I had no idea at the time that, you know, that picture could end up in the paper. It probably it didn't end up that big. Um, but in terms of making the most of it, that, you know, just being aware of your surroundings and maybe shooting something that, you know, the other folks around you aren't. When you get into those networking opportunities, it probably helps to get a portfolio and it's certainly different now than it, than it was then. But what do you do to present your works to say, you know, I'm worthy of this assignment. You should look at me to go take pictures for you. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, uh, you know, when I talk to, you know, younger photographers that were, you know, that are, were in my shoes, you know, back then, but that, that's, that's the biggest rub in, in photography and especially in sports photography. You think when you go show a portfolio, you need to show, you know, a picture from an NFL game you shot or from, you know, the New York city marathon or whatever, when you're first starting out, you don't have access to those things. Um, so early on, there were a handful of photo editors and, and they probably still say the same thing today, but it's just make the most of your opportunities. So whether that means walking down the street to a high school football game and making a really cool photo at a high school football game, um, or, you know, shooting, you know, if someone's running, you know, doing a daily exercise outside and there's cool shadows or there's cool light, just make, you don't, you don't need to have a credential to a major event 
to actually build a portfolio. Um, and so, you know, I learned that early on, you know, when you go and sit down with these photo editors, they don't want to see, you know, a, a picture of the New York Giants or, or a picture of, you know, Roger Federer or anything. They want to see that you have the, the, the willpower to make a photo potentially out of nothing um, and embrace whatever surroundings you may be in. You don't, again, you don't have to, you know, be at the, the biggest and best event in the world. In 2010, you took on a little bit of a different role in another Olympics of Vancouver, but you were a photo supervisor at the sliding center. This feels very administrative, but what, what does that function actually do? Yeah, so um, uh, I don't know if I would call it administrative as much as it, it was, you were part of the events logistics team. So you, you basically were... Uh, my, my task was I was responsible as well as my boss there. We were responsible for all of the photo positions at the sliding center, right? So when Sports Illustrated shows up or when Getty shows up or the New York Times show up and they need photo positions to shoot, you know, a gold medal run of, you know, the, the luge or bobsled, um, the Olympics are very calculated. There's very specific broadcast positions that only broadcasters can shoot from. And then there's very specific photo positions. You can't just, you know, if you have a credential, you can't just roam freely at an event that large. So we were responsible for managing all of the photographers that came through that venue. And every venue at the Olympics has, um, you know, has a photo manager and, and supervisor that basically kind of troubleshoots any issues. So if there's any issues with broadcast cameras getting in the way or, um, if your photo positions are kind of suck, you know, you're the first line of defense on trying to troubleshoot and figure out what, um, you know, a, a solution. So that was, that was, again, the first, the, the, probably the next first event that I really got into and I wasn't shooting and early, initially I was kind of bummed that, you know, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get this photography thing off the ground. Um, and I'm going to an Olympics. This is awesome. I'm going to be on site in the Olympics, but I'm not shooting it. I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be standing there watching others shoot it. Um, and, I, and I quickly, I, I embraced the job, and I, but, I, but I quickly realized, like, this is a very cool opportunity for someone as, as young as I was at the time um, to, to be a part of. Um, and to, to the Olympics, if you've never been to the Olympics, are, they're, they're one of the most wild events that I've ever been to, um, just in terms of the scope and size and number of media members and just the way that they're built out, it's pretty impressive. Um, so I was a very small cog in that wheel, um, dealing with a lot of um, sports photographers, which, you know, everyone has their um, own opinions on how us sports photographers act amongst one another and act to uh, act around others. Um, so it was, it was very eye-opening and it was a, it was a pretty cool experience. I, I actually had a, a PGA caddy on credentials only a few weeks ago and, um, he said he thinks it's valuable. The golfer should have to caddy and, and the caddy should have to play around for you. You talk about how valuable it is to be kind of on that other side to facilitate that work. Do you think it's helped your photography having had that experience? Um, yeah, I think so. I, I, I think from a, from a, from a logistical and business standpoint, it definitely has. Um, you realize as a, you know, having been in this industry for however long I've been in it now, you realize pretty early on, um, no matter how much you complain, no matter how much you, you moan about the, the circumstances that you're put in as a sports photographer or how, however crappy your photo position is at whatever event you, you're, you're covering, you realize early on that you're not the only entity that's in the building. 
whatever, whatever the event may be. And you've got broadcasters that are paying an awful lot of money to broadcast the event. You've got uh, officials and umpires and referees that are actually making sure that the event happens in a, you know, in, in, in the right way. Um, so to be ticked off as a photographer that, you know, a linesman is in your way, um, you know, I, I learned early on that, or, or a camera operator, you know, gets in the way of someone celebrating, you know, in tennis, a match point or, or whatever. Um, you, you realize early on that, that you can't get that worked up over those types of things. And you just have to work around them um, because there are other factors that, that exist at all of these events. And so I think being a, a photo supervisor at, uh, at the Vancouver Olympics, I think was, was very early on taught me um, that, you know, photography is cool, but you're not the only, you're not the only people that are in the building that, that are important. In 2011, you began getting some regular assignments outside of sports. For whom did you start working? Yeah, so um, so the Star Ledger, which is the biggest newspaper in New Jersey, um, another newspaper that I sat down with um, to get an internship or, or applied for an internship while I was in college. And again, the networking piece played a big role here is I stayed in touch with that photo editor, even though I didn't get the internship. And I just kept pounding the pavement and saying, hey, you know, I've moved back to New Jersey now, um, you know, and I'm around. So if you have anything. Um, and so um, Star Ledger, um, I started shooting a lot of non sports related stuff, um, New York Times sports related stuff. But um, yeah, it, it just it was, it was that networking piece of continuing to um, continue to evolve. There's also one in, New, in Washington. You went back to Washington and you started to shoot for about five years uh, for a couple entities in Washington. My resume, which I haven't touched in a really long time, may not differentiate this, but that was completely outside of the photo world. So I, I did not, it wasn't photography that I was involved with at all. Um, but I did, um, it, it kind of ties into the event logistics stuff that I did for the Vancouver Olympics. Um, and I, um, yeah, I had a, a friend that literally the way that this worked was I had a friend that had worked on many campaigns prior that said, Hey, are you interested in getting involved at all? Um, in, uh, you know, doing some stuff for the current, uh, administration that's in the white house. And I had no idea at the time what that meant. Um, and so I got a call literally the next day from a 202 number, which is the Washington DC area code saying, Hey, can you get on a plane, uh, tomorrow? Um, and so that was, that was, it had nothing to do with photography. It was more the event logistics stuff that I kind of veered a little bit, um, back and forth throughout those five years. And it was part of the advance work is I think how it's classified on your LinkedIn profile anyway. Yep. Yep. Um, which means what? Yeah. So I, I've, act, I've been up until pretty recently, I've been pretty shy. Like it's not something that I normally talk about. Um, when you're in the weeds of it, you don't, you know, you're, you're dealing with fairly sensitive stuff, not top secret stuff at all, but your, your, your regular day-to-day -day stuff can be pretty um, sensitive in nature. Um, so basically it's there, there is an event logistics team basically This is, this is the easiest way to describe it. There's an event logistics team that will travel in advance of the sitting president, vice president, first lady, even second lady, um, that will go to wherever they're going about five to seven days before an, an event that they're doing. So that could be a campaign speech, that could be, you know, 
visiting troops somewhere, any of any anyone, you know, any number of things that you know a sitting president does. Um, and so I got plugged into one of those teams um, and started crisscrossing the world randomly. Um, and it was a very cool. It was it was a break from photography. Um, although I became uh, friendly with the uh, White House photographer, who I'm still friends with, um, but but it it was a completely different set of it, it was the same set of skills in the sense that you're dealing with major events, but now you're like a you're a decision maker and you're technically working for the federal government, um, which again it, you know is a is a wild experience, um, but yeah that through that you're maintaining your photography. What are you doing now that you've, you know, this is now four or five years out of college. How are you now growing this business? Cause you've gone from, can I make it work to it's clearly working. And this is probably the phase where you're starting to get into that, where things are just coming at you. Sure. Yeah. So I think uh, I, I don't want to discount the fact that shooting for the New York times, um, was, was, I think a major catalyst. Um, the New York times obviously is a massive, paper um, that has, a, you know, a, a major reach. So when I started shooting for them, you know, I would shoot Giants games and Jets games. Um, my first US Open that I shot was for them. Um, those things give you visibility in, um, in the sports world. Um, everyone, you know, every, every, everyone used to look at that sports section. I don't know how many people are looking at it now, um, but, it, but it's a big paper. Um, and so, that I think that kind of acted as my internal publicity engine, if you will. I don't know. I don't know if that's inappropriate to say or not, but um, it you know getting my name out there um, with with those um, those stories, um, you know, no, no matter how good or bad the the article was, the photos would always accompany it, um, and that I think is what kind of was the catalyst, kind of lit the match under me for. Um, creating, you know, pe you know, the people starting to reach out, you know, without, without me on their own volition, without me reaching out first. Um, and so that started to turn, I probably right, right, right around you when you said, you know, four or five years out of college. So it, it took a while to get, to get going. Um, but then once it started, um, you know, it hasn't really stopped, I guess until now, but we can talk about that later. <laughs> COVID has made everything pause mm -hmm. at least yeah. um in terms of the business side because ultimately you're a sole proprietor now doing this and and you're out there getting your own work but then you also do have to run the business side what are some of the things in terms of the accounting or in particular i would think the legal side for the rights and everything how have you had to learn that piece of the business yeah so i i think as as i started to get stuff coming at me regularly. Um, and so, you know, editorial is one bucket, if you will, but commercial photography is a whole other animal. Um, and if you're shooting, if you're shooting for specific events and then those events are using that imagery, um, you know, they're, they're, they're using that imagery for marketing campaigns in years, you know, years, for years, that's a very different, the, the rate structure is very different. The, as you said, the legal component of, you know, well, what are the rights to, you know, to these photos, all of that, when I first started, I don't think I had any sense of, you know, that when you, when you're young, you don't really think of, well, you know, who owns this picture and, um, 
I think I learned about it pretty early on and it was a lot of just researching online and figuring out, you know, what does copyright mean? What does joint copyright mean? What does a full buyout mean? All of those legal jargon, which you probably learned in law school. Um, you don't really learn a lot of that in business school. Um, you learn some of the accounting pieces to it, but when the rubber meets the road, when you're working for yourself, you know, there, I don't know how much I took away from um, whatever my bachelor's of business administration that I actually use, you know, I, I don't do my own taxes. I probably should. Um, they're too complicated though. Um, but, but you start learning on the, it's just like the photography piece. You start learning on the fly of, you know, well, now I need to put an invoicing system in place because I'm invoicing people, you know, regularly now. Um, you know, now I need, you know, there, there's, there's all these different, you, now I need a contract for, you know, if I'm shooting, you know, some event, there needs to be something on paper saying I'm committing to being there and that they're committing to paying me X number of dollars. Um, so that was, I think, you know, similar to a lot of other stuff early on in my career, it was a little bit of trial by fire of trying to figure out, you know, some really important things of, um, you know, putting together those systems and contracts and, and bouncing those ideas off of others. You know, I've had a handful of mentors that I've had um, in the sports photography world um, early on that, you know, I would reach out to and say, Hey, you know, I'm getting ready to potentially sign an annual contract with, with a client. Uh, can you look at this paperwork and see, you know, what makes sense. And so um, just having, having, having the assets and, and support mechanisms around you to bounce ideas off of, you don't need to talk about numbers per se, but um, talking about copyright and, you know, well, how do you invoice people and what accounting system, you know, software do you use? Um, all of, all of that, you know, it comes as, things kind of grow um, proportionally. It, it didn't happen, you know, early on when I was shooting, you know, once a week for the Star Ledger, the New York Times, you don't have to worry about those things. Yours though, definitely seems like a, you're just going to start doing it and figure it out as you go. You're not going to put that perfect system in place before you start and get into it. Sure. Yeah. I don't, you know, I, I think, I think throughout my, you know, career, I've, I've never really hit the pause button to think like, okay, let's, let's think of this from start to finish of how I'm going to execute this. I think I just make it work. Um, and so th throughout, you know, all of those speed bumps of, you know, the, the first time I probably had to deal with a contract or write my, write a contract for, um, that I, that I wrote was probably a client asking me, Hey, can you send me a contract? Like it was not a thought, there was not a thought in my head of like, well, I need a boilerplate contract to use for all future clients. Um, and so when things, you know, when, when more money starts getting tossed around or when there's a, a larger date commitment um, of number of days that you're shooting or whatever, all of those things become fairly important, which, you know, early on in someone's career, you don't necessarily think about. How competitive, you mentioned having some mentors, but there's also a fair bit of competition in the industry. Are you guys pretty much willing to help each other out or is it pretty cutthroat? Uh, be, be honest. I, listen, I think that, I think there is a component of people in the sports world that, um, in the sports photography world that want to help each other out. Um, and I think there's this new wave of younger photographers that feel empowered enough to reach out to folks that have been in the industry for a little bit, um, to ask for advice. And I think that, for, you know, I haven't been doing this for that long, but, um, the people that have reached out to me, I'm more than willing to, to give feedback about a portfolio or to talk about that business component, um, that you need to think about before you actually kind of dive deep into, um, trying to make this work for a living. Um, 
at events, you know, when you're at major events, when you're at an Australian Open or when you're at the Super Bowl, um, it's cutthroat in the sense that nobody's nobody's trying to do anything maliciously per se. Um, But people are, you know, you're if you're standing next to 50 other photographers, why are the people that are hiring you paying you what they're paying you versus the 50 other people that are standing next to you. Um, and so there's always a concept of, right, there, there's, you have a work product to show, um, but if you're not in the right position at the right time, you're gonna miss you know, a moment or you're gonna miss a photo. Um, whereas those other 50 photographers might be in that, in that position. Um, so it's, it's, there's a cutthroat component to it for sure. So how do you then set yourself up for success so that you're getting the better image than the 50 guys you're standing next to. Yeah, I think initially it's it's kind of like it's it's just throw something at the wall and see what sticks. I think that's initially when you first start out, um, and then when you start shooting things regularly, um, there's some calculation to it. So when I'm shooting a tennis match, um, it depends on who's on the court, but I have a good sense of what that potential player is going to do at match point. Um, they're all creatures of habit. Athletes are creatures of habit. They train the same way. They celebrate the same way. They look dejected in the same fashion. Um, so doing a little bit of early on doing a little bit of research of, you know, well, if I'm going to go shoot Rafael Nadal for the first time ever, like maybe I should watch Rafa, you know, play in a match on TV before I actually go shoot him because you can pick up those various tendencies. If he wins and he falls to his knees and puts his arms in the air or does, you know, a a weird kick jump or whatever, you wouldn't know that unless you did a little bit of research. If you've never seen him before, you'd have to do a little bit of research. So I think one of the things that I that I've been decent at is, you know, photography, a lot of it is luck, um, but there is some calculation to it and making sure that you're in the right place at the right time to anticipate when those moments happen. Um, and, and sometimes they don't happen, but if you, if you set yourself up, um, for, you know, uh, them to potentially happen, then you get lucky every once in a while. You've mentioned a number of different sports and obviously 2020 is, uh, you can't take this as any basis of anything given COVID, sure. but let's look back at 2019 percentage wise. What did you shoot? What percentage was tennis versus football versus soccer versus basketball, roughly? It's a really good question. Um, I've never, I've never broken it out like that. Just like I've never broken out how many days out of the year I'm on the road because I'm afraid to do it. I'm afraid, I'm afraid to see what that number is. Um, you know, in, in tennis, I, tennis has somehow enveloped my calendar um, in, in a really good way because I love the sport. I love the people that are in the sport um, and I love shooting it. You're normally shooting, you know, not one day's worth of work. You're shooting seven days or you're shooting 14 days or whatever it might be. Um, so tennis, just by the sheer number of days, probably takes the cake um, because again, you're booking these big blocks of time on your schedule. Um, but it's, it's, it's all seasonal, right? So, you know, after January, there's no tennis for a little while. Um, so, you know, I, I, I roll into college basketball and I'm on a baseline in, in, you know, NCAA basketball all the way through, um, you know, March madness typically. Um, so that, you know, that in that moment feels like, you know, I'm shooting that hundred percent out of the year. And then, you know, when the fall rolls around, you know, a, a smattering of collegiate football and then NFL stuff. Um, so I, I break it out by seasons. I've never done a percentage of which sport I've shot the most. 
And for the sake of this next question, I'm going to say, let's talk football because I would think to the very untrained person that football is different to cover because it's just such a bigger field of play compared to a basketball or a, a, a tennis match. So when you're going out for a football game, what's your typical day like? And starting with what's the equipment you have to bring with you? Sure. So it's, you know, a football game on TV could be three and a half to four hours for, uh, for a photographer that's covering a football game, whether it be collegiate or, or NFL, it's an, it's a whole day affair. You're, um, you know, if it, if there's a, if it's a 1 PM kickoff, you are, you know, in the building, you know, no later than 10 AM getting yourself ready. Um, you know, depending on who you're shooting for, sometimes you need to shoot player arrivals. Um, so it's, it's an all day affair. And by the time, you know, a 1 PM kick is done, you know, you're talking about four, four 30, you're not out of there after editing until five or six o'clock. Um, so it's, it's a, it's a heavy lift in terms of number of hours, um, for not that much action because there's so many TV breaks, you know, throughout, throughout the game or whatever. Um, in terms, in terms of equipment, um, you know, for, for me, I normally have, again, it depends a little bit on who you're shooting for, but the general tenets of, you know, football photography, you have a really long lens. So that's usually a 400 millimeter or 600 millimeter, which are those really cool, massive looking lenses that are a pain in the butt to carry for a full day. Um, gets really annoying. It just feels like a dead paperweight on your shoulder. Um, and then you have a mid range and then a wide angle lens. Um, and so, you know, the short lens is, you know, if someone catches a touchdown right in front of you in the end zone and flies out of bounds and potentially, you know, comes within an earshot of you, you've got that wide lens to, to use. Um, and then that mid range just covers you, covers you for, you know, anything that's happening um, too close for that long lens. And now you add in, if you get outside of a basketball game, you got the elements. How does that impact what you're doing, especially a wet weather or up in New York, cold weather? For sure. Um, yeah, some, if, it's, if it's pouring out or if there's a snowstorm, you're probably not carrying three cameras around. You're probably gonna focus on just having two with you and making that do just because the, uh, you know, the, the rain gear on these cameras has not been developed to, to be super intuitive. Um, so you're messing with, you know, you're, you're shooting through, uh, there is rain gear that I have on, you know, on my cameras and on yourself. The expectation is if you're outside for four hours, you're going to get soaked no matter what, but obviously the gear is really expensive. So you try to protect the gear as best as possible. Um, so, you know, that, that adds a little bit to, um, you know, the difficulty of shooting, it's hard to, you know, if you're running down the sideline to try to capture a play that's about to get snapped, um, you know, and then you have to mess with your rain gear to, to lift it up to see through the viewfinder. It's, uh, it's complicated. I've missed, uh, you know, I, I've missed moments for sure. I specifically remember a soccer game, an MLS game last year uh, in Philadelphia, it was pouring rain and um, there was a goal that was scored and the guys ran right to my corner and I went and I, because everything was in rain gear, I fumbled and I went to grab my, my short lens to shoot like this epic celebration in front of me. And I completely botched the entire moment specifically because of the rain gear and everything was just slippery. It's probably one of the few times that I've completely botched something. I botched things plenty, but usually I can recover in some fashion. Um, but yeah, it's a, it, it, it adds a completely different, you know, and then you have to be careful of, you know, your physical safety of making sure you're not wiping out, you know, if you're running ahead of the player or whatever, you know, there's, there's one moment that I remember post game at a Giants game where 
I was running out to have the two coaches, you know, the two coaches shake hands after the game. And uh, coach Tom Coughlin was the head coach of the Giants. And I literally was, I don't think I can run that fast, but however fast I could run, I was running out to the field after the game ended. And his body person or security or whatever, all he did was he he saw me running with cameras, which happens every post game, but he put his hand out and I connected with his hand and I literally wiped out so hard on national TV. Um, but it, was, it wasn't because the guy pushed me, it was because it was really rainy out and I was carrying all my camera gear and he offered, he offered me a hand to help me up and I was like, no, I'm gonna get up by myself because that was really uh, awkward and embarrassing. But yeah, the element can, can you know, make a huge difference. We talked a little bit about Vancouver and how there are assigned spots and the bigger the event, the more likely that you're, you're given a, a location and that's where you're shooting from. But yeah. if it's a game where you can pick your own spot, and this varies obviously sport to sport, but how do you then decide where you want to go? Yeah, um, it, it's, it involves a little research, right? If you've been in the venue before, then you have a sense of, you know, if it's late afternoon, you have a sense of what the lighting looks like. Um, you have a sense of, you know, if, if there's going to be harsh shadows on the field at a football game, you know, you might want to go upstairs for a quarter to shoot, to shoot those. Um, it, it really depends. Same thing, you know, in, in the tennis world, um, you know, early on, nothing's, no positions are assigned. So you just kind of, you, you, you want to be aware of your surroundings and again, do that little bit of research. So if I've never been into a venue before, you know, I'm going to look up previous year's pictures from that venue or from that event, just to see if there are any cool vantage points. Um, and, you know, if the light's crossing at, a, at, a, at a, a funky angle that makes, you know, cool stuff, you know, stuff look cool on the field um, of play, wherever that might be. Um, so you're just, you're, you're taking all of your surroundings into play and making, you know, some sort of a calculated decision slash half guess on, you know, what's gonna look the coolest at that time. I don't know how these things work, so please explain it to me. But I, I always marvel when I'm sitting there watching a basketball game. I see these cameras just hanging out behind the backboard. <laughs> Do you yeah. use those, and what's going on with those? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so um, so for and each league has a different set of rules. The NCAA's rules are a little bit different than the NBA's rules. But um, you know, if if you're a basketball photographer, you're probably setting up remote cameras. So that's what you're seeing. You're seeing remote cameras behind the glass. You're seeing some of them on the stanchion. And then what you're not seeing probably are cameras that are mounted off of the catwalk to get like a a straight overhead angle. Um, and so yeah, you know, for depending on how serious the game is and depending on the venue and what's allowed and what's not allowed. Obviously you have to, if you're hanging something over someone's head or even on the basket, you want to make sure that um, you have some sort of insurance coverage so that if anything goes south, um, you know, that's super important. And when you're younger, you're not really thinking about that stuff, but you know, as you get into a phase of, you know, starting a business and being a business, you, you want to make sure, you know, you have that box checked. But um, yeah, for, you know, a, a major basketball game, if you're talking about like March Madness, you could have upward, you know, I've had upwards of four to six remotes all over the venue. So, you know, if there's a crazy dunk or if there's a crazy celebration, and then you could, in addition to the camera that you have in your hand, you could have six different angles of that same dunk, depending on, you know, depending on the venue. It, it's, and again, in terms of the, the time component, you know, a basketball game is what, two hours, maybe two and a half, you know, on TV. 
you're there hours beforehand sitting up because you can't set any of this stuff up while these guys are shooting around. You can't set any of up if there's, if the arena's open, if there's people in the seats, you don't want to be hanging stuff over people's heads. Um, so it's a, it's a pretty long day commitment, but yeah, that's what you're, if you're seeing a glass remote, that's what, uh, that's what you're, you're referring to. How do you shoot that? I mean, you're, you got a camera in your hands. Is there another button somewhere? How does yeah, that so, work? So it depends. Every photographer has a different way of doing it. Um, I usually have, um, it actually looks much more nefarious, but there's a trigger that's in my hand. It's painted. It's like there's orange tape around it. It looks kind of, looks like something you would see in like a, some action movie. I don't know, you know <laughs> what, what action movie, but, um, and that's connected to a, a remote that's then connected to those cameras. So depending on where the cameras are, there are, there are different channels that you have set. So if there are cameras on the other side of the, uh, of the court, you know, you're, you might be firing those cameras at a different time than you're firing the one that's in your hand or the one that's behind the glass on the same side of the court as you. But yeah, it's all remotely triggered. Are remotes used much in other sports? Um, basketball is probably the biggest one. Um, you know, hockey, because they're in, you know, a controlled venue mostly. Um, but, you know, there is something not really at NFL games, the venues are too large and they typically, unless you're at Jerry World down at, down where the Cowboys play, there's typically, a lot of them are open air um, and the catwalks are just way too high. If it is an enclosed venue, they're way too high to mount anything. Um, but yeah, usually basketball and hockey. To someone who's never taken a photograph at a sporting event, what's the aspect of your job that would probably surprise me or someone else who's a sports fan and has seen you guys doing your work and seen your work in newspapers and magazines a ton. What would be the most surprising thing from, from me to know about what you You've do? taken pictures at events. What are you talking about? You have an iPhone in your pocket. You've taken sports photos. <laughs> I don't um, think that counts, man. I mean, uh, these days, anything, anything goes right. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, the most, I, I think the one thing, the, the one thing that people are surprised by is all of the um, all of the thought that goes into stuff beforehand and after the fact, right? So like, yes, it's very cool to be on the sidelines of a Super Bowl or to be at the Australian Open or Wimbledon, you know, in those photo pits. And, you know, you have family or friends that catch, you know, catch your, your you know, your, your head in the background of, of the broadcast and you get all these texts like, this is so cool that you're there. Um, you, you don't, you don't really see any of the backstory of a how you got there per se and then b afterwards after you're physically done shooting there's a whole other mess that you have to deal with of well where are these photos going um and so for each client that's a different story some clients need stuff during the match or during the game um you know and so, and some people need you know edited stuff as soon as the thing's over so the editing piece of of wrapping things up on the back end is super time time consuming um and you don't necessarily see that when you see sports photographers on sidelines um you don't realize that they could be spending hours behind their computer um you know at, when when the event is 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 over with what is that process that you're doing yeah. So the, again, it depends on the client, but the, the, for, I mean, for me, a lot of the stuff that I'm shooting um, there, there's obviously an, uh, an, an everlasting need these days for more content yesterday. You know, you need more stuff constantly um, and you need it all the time. And so when I'm shooting a live event for a lot of my clients, 
that I am sending those images in, in real time. So there's a system set up that, you know, if, if there's a touchdown that's scored and whoever I'm shooting for wants that photo of the touchdown to put in a graphic or to put on Twitter or Instagram or whatever, that image is there waiting for them within a few seconds of that touchdown happening. Um, you know, on the converse side, you know, if I'm shooting, you know, a, a football game for the New York Times, I'm probably not sending them stuff until halftime, unless it's the Super Bowl, and that's a completely different story where everyone needs stuff constantly because of the just the large scale and scope of that event. Um, but yeah, the the, the post processing of stuff, you know, if you're taking, if you're at a football game, you shoot three thousand or four thousand images, you have to go through each one of those images, tag the ones that you like, and then in that subset, then you have to edit all, you know, edit that whole set before you send that off to, you know, whoever your client may be. So there, it's a time consuming process for sure. There's plenty that goes on on the field of play, but you've also been able to capture some more intimate moments behind the scenes. What's it like to get that access and how do you make these athletes who are trying to focus on a pretty important event of their own, how do you make them feel comfortable that you're loitering and snapping away? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's a fine line and it's a, it's a dance that you have to play. Um, some athletes are really sensitive to, you know, first off, every, every athlete, I've, I never played sports. Um, but every athlete, the one thing that I have learned is every athlete has a routine, which I think I mentioned before. So, and, and that starts probably when they wake up, depending on how they, you know, how they go about their day. Um, if, if they have a game or a match. So, when, when I am kind of, I mean, it probably looks to the naked eye like I'm literally some sort of a stalker where I'm kind of hanging out around corners and, and in little crevices and hallways. Um, I am very sensitive. There are some photographers that are not. I am hypersensitive to the fact that if I'm being given this access, I need to be very careful with it. So if I'm the official photographer of whatever event um, and there's, you know, some of those behind the scenes moments are they're super intimate. They're super personal to some of the athletes. Um, so I'm never shooting anything that's compromising in any, in any sort of way. Um, but I, th I think the one thing that athletes are starting to realize now is obviously, and, and it's, it's been a big push, you know, in, in, in recent history, but all these athletes have their own voice and they have their own, they all have their own platforms that they're fueling their stuff with content. Um, and so I think there are a lot of professional athletes out there, um, definitely in the tennis world. And I think you're starting to see it now, you know, with NBA for sure, NFL players, um, is that there, there is a, there, there's a premium to really good content. And if it's behind the scenes stuff, um, I mean, one picture really comes to mind, and I think it was either the 2018 or 19 Australian Open. Serena Williams has a very particular pregame, pre-match ritual. I don't know everything that goes into it, um, but there's no way that I'm going to be caught between her and the court. I am going to make sure that I'm nowhere to be seen. Um, and so there was a moment where she, she was stretching or warming up um, uh, at the Australian Open in one of the corridors, and she, I think she just like flicked her hair or she was doing something with her, her headband that was on something where her hair, there was like, her hair kind of made this wild kind of motion. I took literally one frame of it. Um, and um, I thought to myself, eh, that's kind of like a strange, strange thing to see. It's a cool picture, but like Serena, it's a superstar. It's a, like, it's a weird moment that not everyone has really seen. Um, I sent it along 
I think the Australian Open used it. And then literally within four hours of Serena being off court, it was all over her Instagram with like more likes than you could ever. And so there, there's, there's, there's some of that gratification of like, well, that picture wouldn't have been taken if I wasn't kind of hanging out behind the scenes. Um, but, it, but, but to be long-winded and answer your question, it, it's, it's a fine dance of making sure that you're sensitive to, again, there's all these other stakeholders involved, whether it be the player's management team or their physio team or coaches having a private moment. You don't want to be, you, you're, you're not part of the team, but you're there capturing exclusive content, which is really valuable for both the player these days, as well as, you know, the tournament or whoever you're shooting for. This could be a long conversation, could be probably its own podcast really to get into this, but just briefly, because of the media today, it has changed and it's very different than when you started and the newspapers were looking for one or two images. Now you can't provide enough images, like you said, but those images then get replicated and used so far and wide because of the way images just spread around the internet. How has that changed what you do or impacted what you do? Um, that's a pretty, that's a pretty good, you're a good question, questioner. Um, I, I think- Why do you listen, sound surprised? <laughs> I, I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not surprised at all. I, I, I shouldn't be surprised at all. Um, it's just, this could be like one of my first human to human interactions since March with, with the world. Well, that's so fair. Maybe that's where I'm trying to, trying to catch back up. Um, I know how to pick my spots. <laughs> I, I, I think, listen, when I, like my first ever, not to keep going back to tennis, but my first ever Australian open, I think was 2010. Instagram didn't exist in 2010. I don't think, or I definitely didn't have an account. Um, so yeah, the landscape has for sure changed. And because there are all these different platforms um, in, in the social space, uh, right, you're, you're, you're checking the box of like pictures that end up being used in newspaper outlets and, and, and print publications. But then you've got 60 other platforms, whether it be Snapchat or Instagram or Twitter or TikTok or what, you know, whatever Facebook, um, all of those diff all of those different channels require content. And it's probably not the same photo that they want. You know, each one of those channels, I'm not a social media whiz, but they each have a different demographic of who's on them and who's, um, you know, who's using them and who's consuming content. Um, so yeah, you know, during this, during this period of time where there hasn't been much sport going on, I've spent a lot of time going back through my archives and I've looked at a handful of like edited photos from a football game or from a tennis match. Like I wasn't sending or I wasn't giving, I didn't have that many edited images to actually give. Um, I, that could be a function of how I was, you know, where, where I was in my career of shooting. But now, I mean, if you shoot a tennis match, you know, the expectation is, you know, anywhere between 70 to 300 pictures for potentially one tennis match. And that's, that's a huge pivot from, again, I haven't been in the industry that long, but from when I first started, maybe you get 15 really good pictures, maybe 20. Some of that has to do with the equipment and the gear being more advanced. Um, but yeah, the picture, you know, the stuff goes, you know, once you post something to Instagram or to Twitter or, or the tournament, you know, a tournament or event does, some of the stuff can catch like wildfire and your picture is showing up, you know, places that you, you have no idea. Some of it doesn't have, you know, credit depending on who you're shooting for and what that arrangement is. So, you know, there have been random times where I've seen my pictures 
pop up on random people's you know instagrams and twitter feeds and it's cool it's there's some gratification in seeing that but it's like how did you get that picture that's crazy um so that's definitely evolved you know over the past you know half decade for sure all right a few rapid fire questions for you here hmm. first of all gotta ask have you ever been barreled over on the sidelines um, never in football, in basketball, I've had referees that are like running full speed, some of them backwards. And I've had a referee fall backwards on top of me, but I've never been, I've never been hit in a football game. Um, th there have been photographers that have been, and, and some, you know, there's some pretty gruesome stories. Um, but no, I, I've been, I need to find, I don't know if there's wood around here, but I need to knock on wood. <laughs> that has not happened to me yet. What are a couple photos that you've taken that really stand out to you? Uh, um, they're probably both tennis photos. Um, the first, and they're, they're both not technically sound really. Um, the, the, the first one would probably be Rafa Nadal winning his first U S open, which I think was 2010. Um, he fell to his knees, put his hands in the air. Um, and that was my first front page photo in the New York times. Um, so that just because of that, sequence of events that it ended up on the front page of the times that's probably the coolest photo that i it, it's not a great photo but just the the concept of that i think you said there were two from yeah. the tennis okay all right so the other so the other one uh first ever australian open men's finals you're you're totally grinded down because you're working like 20 plus days it's super hot down there uh the sunsets in australia in melbourne do some wild things um and i think it i think roger won that yeah so 2010 roger won um i went upstairs to the concourse the sky turned purple orange i don't know what colors it turned um and i think i at the time i, I didn't have a fisheye lens which i think some people would think is funny because all i know how to use these days is a fisheye lens um and i took a a, a really wide photo of rod laver arena and that's probably one of the coolest you know, pictures, just the colors in that is, were pretty wild. You already mentioned one uh, from soccer of, of a photo you just missed. Are there yeah. any others that really stand out? Um, not really. Listen, you're not, you're never gonna, you're never gonna get every single moment from start to finish in, in a game. Um, you just have to um, hope that you've set yourself up for success. So there's nothing that sticks out. Um, there, there are plenty of moments that I've missed over the course of time, for sure. What are your favorite events to shoot? Um, you know, I, it's a tough question. Seasonally, I have favorite events, right? Like when March rolls around, the final fours are awesome. Uh, back up to, you know, February, the Super Bowl, which I haven't covered that many times, but really, really cool. Um, but there are the, even, even some smaller events, you know, I've, I've gone on feature assignments for the times, you know, shooting, you know, a high school football game on a Friday night, you know, in Northern New Jersey, which football's huge there. Um, even those smaller events, there, there's a piece, and I think we all appreciate this now, given, given what's kind of transpired but um in in uh in life these days i think any event that you're there capturing it for you know other people to be able to see um i, I get it i get a kick out of that for some reason I'm, I'm not sure why what event would you most like to shoot that you haven't yet 
So before 2017, there was only one on that list and that was Wimbledon. And I've checked that off. Um, I don't shoot golf, but probably the masters. Um, I shoot a little bit of golf. You know, I've done a U.S. Open or two. I've done a PGA Championship, but um, the Masters, Augusta. There, there are a lot of parallels that people draw from the All In Club to Augusta, um, and so that's probably if there was one left on the list, that's probably it. I close with the six question set pieces. I start with what are the podcasts or newsletters that you're consuming to help you stay informed, keep you learning. Am I allowed to say credentials only? Of course. Um, Please do. Listen, I'm not a, I'm not a big podcast guy. I don't, and I don't know why that is. Um, but I've listened to, I've listened to some of yours. Um, I've also somehow, you know, been ingrained in tennis world for a handful of years. I've listened to the tennis Tuesdays, um, which I don't, that's not really a podcast. It's like a I don't know. I don't know what you would call that, but with, with Blair Henley and Nick McCarville, I don't, but I'm not a big, I'm not a big podcast guy in the newsletter front. Um, I don't necessarily subscribe to any specific newsletters, but recently just navigating through this, um, I was going to say post COVID world, but it's not post in any way, but navigating the business side of things. Um, I've, I have paid a lot more attention to, um, legal newsletters and, and law firms that are putting out guidance on um, federal funding and, and other things that are involved in the business space um, to kind of ride this ride the storm out. Um, but yeah, boring answers. Who are your most valuable follows? The social media posts you don't want to miss. That's a tough one. Um, you know, I I, sub, I kind of follow all of the major news networks, if you will, just to stay on top of, you know, what's going on good or not so good in the world. Um, you know, in the sports space, I think the two of the two, two ones that kind of stick out to me, um, one in the tennis space, Chris Clary, that's an easy one to, to kind of check off the list. Um, just the, the insight that he has, not only in the tennis world, but in sports in general, but usually if there's any sort of news or, or dramatic stuff that's going on in tennis world, he's got it. Um, and then Billy Weiss, who is the team photographer up at the Red Sox, somehow always reinvents the wheel um, in the in the sports photo space. And so keeping tabs on, as I said, imitation is the highest form of flattery in this industry, but keeping tabs on all of the wild stuff that um, he comes up with. Um, it's, it, I, those are two follows for sure. What are a couple of books you'd recommend for people to check out? So uh, since March, I have reread The Great Gatsby for like the sixth straight time, like all-time favorite book. Um, I probably first read it in high school or middle school. Um, huge fan of that book. And then the, the other books that I'm reading right now um, don't really fit my, my age bracket whatsoever, but um, I'm on like the fourth edition of, of the Harry Potter series. Um, I never read them when I was a kid. Um, and for whatever reason, I, first off, I, I'm not like a big reader, so you can blow through those books really easily. The, you know, the, the writing isn't that difficult. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if I would recommend that to people. Um, I, because of how old I am, I ripped the cover off so nobody sees that, you know, there's this grown man reading <laughs> Harry Potter book. Um, but I love them for whatever reason. And again, I've never, I'm, maybe I'm trying to re-experience childhood because I'd never read them before. That sounds like a bad travel book though it's too big you don't want that lugging that around so 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 you have to buy the paperback version right and then because i 
don't want people like if I'm on an airplane, I don't want people to see what I'm reading. You just tear the cover off and then you kind of cover the binding. So, you know, it looks like they are big, they are big. And then with all the camera gear, so I usually have to hold it's it, yeah, it, it, it's a process, but <laughs> television, what are you streaming? Uh, um, for, for some reason I, I've gotten into like the Ozarks, which I just finished recently. Um, was a big fan of that entire series. And then right now I'm watching turn, uh, which I think is on Netflix, but it's, um, it's about the revolutionary war. I don't know. I'm, I don't think I'm a history buff, but I think I might be turned into one as I kind of get a little bit older. Um, but it's, it's about George Washington and, um, it's, I think some, a lot of it's based in truth. Um, but there's Netflix, I get really nervous about because once you get towards the end of a series, I get, I like get sad that it's over. So I just stop watching in, in totality turn has like five or six seasons. So I'm like, ah, this is going to last for a while. So that's what I'm watching right now. What's your favorite sports memory as a kid? Uh, probably the 2000 Super Bowl in Atlanta. And that was the first probably major event that I ever went to with uh, my dad took me. Um, but that's probably the biggest sporting event that I was ever at, at that, at that age. It was a crazy, crazy ice storm, Atlanta, uh, like shut down and it was really, uh, sketchy for a while from a weather standpoint, but it, but definitely 2000 Super Bowl with my dad. And was that a, a game just cause it was a big game or was there a rooting interest? No, no rooting interest. I mean, my dad grew up in St. Louis. So the, uh, the then St. Louis Rams were, were in it. Um, so, I mean, that he, I think he rooted a little bit for that team, although that franchise has bounced around a bunch throughout the years. But yeah, just, just being a quasi football fan and, and at, you know, the biggest game that, you know, that there is. Lastly, do you keep your credentials? And if so, where is that collection? I definitely do. So it used to be on, I had a lamp on my desk and I used to just like throw them on the lamp. And after a while, the lamp every once in a while, like as it got deeper in the year, the lamp would fall over. So I'm like, I can't do that anymore. So the, the current credentials for like the, the, the calendar year go in just like a, a desk drawer. Um, and then all of previous years go into just a shoebox, And so I have a handful of shoe boxes with, you know, credentials going back, going back, going back a handful of days. Ben, I really appreciate the time. It was great to learn more about what you do and how you got into this business. And thanks for indulging me with reminiscing about your short stint as a writer in, in the printed publications as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Pete. If you have not already done so, I'd encourage you to visit the show notes on credentialsonly.com for links to Ben's portfolio and to view a few of the pictures that we talked about in this episode. While you're at credentialsonly.com, take a minute to sign up so you'll get an email every time we have a new episode. I want to thank you for listening and thank Ben for his time and joining me for this episode. Don't forget, take a moment and leave a review wherever you are listening to this podcast. Mike Michet edits credentials only, which is a Walter Media production.